In the name of the Father and the Son and God's Holy Spirit, one God. Amen. So good to see some of you 11 o'clockers at 9 o'clock. Nice to know that you're awake at this time of the day. This is the time when a lot of people start thinking about their Christmas shopping or the fact that they haven't started thinking about their Christmas shopping. So I want to begin by telling you about a little practice, a, a, a way that you can get a bargain. Um, in many stores, you can find a section of merchandise where you can get a great deal. And the tip-off is a particular tag that you can find on every piece of merchandise in that section. Uh, the little tag has two words on it. It simply says, as is, which is a euphemistic way of saying these are damaged goods. Sometimes we refer to them as slightly irregular, which is the store's way of saying uh, there's a stain here that we can't get out. There's a zipper that doesn't zip. There's a button that doesn't butt. We're not going to tell you where that flaw is. You'll have to look for it. But it's there, and when you find it, and you will, there's not to be any whimpering or sniveling. There will be no refunds. You are fair, fore, forewarned it is as is. Um, which got me thinking this week about uh, what if there was a truth in advertising law about people instead? Um, those of you who are single, wouldn't it be great if dating services required everyone to wear a little tag that told you about the junk that is going on inside of them? Something like slightly bruised self-esteem or mildly impaired ability to commit <laughs> or giant black hole of emotional neediness that will suck you dry. If there were a truth in advertising law like that, really, would anyone ever date, let alone get married? Um, really quickly, just take a sneak look at the people around you. You know how to do this. Take a sneak look at the people around you, because those people are slightly irregular. I mean that in a metaphorical sense, of course. Uh, if you look closely enough, there is a little tag on that person that says, as is. Don't expect perfection. There is a flaw here, and when you find it, and if you stick around here long enough, you will find it. Don't be shocked at this. And there is, of course, a reason why I mention this. In the next few weeks, with the holidays approaching, many of us are going to be getting together with our extended families. And maybe your extended family is just a paradigm of emotional maturity and mental health. <laughs> maybe not. Maybe there will be someone sitting around the table who is wearing a little tag that says, as is. And so the question, whether you are married, single, whether you have kids, grandkids, the question is, how do you create a God-honoring home with the people who are closest to you? Because it is very possible that someone around that table is going to have a flaw or two. And it turns out that some of Jesus' most famous and often most misunderstood sayings 
are about difficult relationships with as-is type people. For example, he said, if someone strikes you on the cheek, that doesn't have to be physically, you should turn the other cheek. He said, if someone asks for your cloak, you should take the shirt off your back. He said, if someone wants you to go a mile, you should go the second mile. Now, I think it's really important when we come to those kinds of teachings of Jesus that you and I understand something about Jesus' style, something about his methods of teaching. Because there are a lot of people who misunderstand some of the things that Jesus says in this way, and, and so they just give up on the whole thing. They say it's impractical, it's unrealistic. So when Jesus makes statements like this, he is not giving us new rules that we are to obey legalistically. Very often, Jesus' teaching contrasts the way things are in the kingdom of God versus what we might call conventional wisdom. That is, the way people usually reflexively respond. But he's not giving us a new set of rules. So a classic example is the lesson from Luke that John first read to us. So there are a group of people who are jockeying for the best seats, which incidentally in our church are right here in the front for those of you who are way in, in the back there. They are jockeying for those seats, and he wants them to think in a different way about this. And so Jesus says to his host, look, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, um, don't invite your friends, your brother, your relative, or your rich neighbors. If you do, they might actually repay you. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection. I don't know if that was quid pro quo, but it sounds like it. And thus, Jesus clearly teaches that you do not have to have your relatives over for dinner. Some of you have been waiting for this verse your entire life. You will be going home and calling your relatives and saying, you cannot come for dinner. Jesus says so. Luke 14, 12. Great. So is Jesus really saying that you, it is a sin to cook a holiday meal for your extended family members? Well, you're making me a little nervous. Some of you are not quite sure. Of course not. What is he doing? He is illustrating what life in the kingdom of God looks like by contrasting it with conventional wisdom. So conventional wisdom says, if you're going to do something nice, do it for the strategic people in your life. Invite the boss over for dinner. We know how this works. You scratch my back, I will scratch yours. And the truth is, if you do that exclusively, or even primarily, you will eventually become a calculating person, addicted to your own self-interest. Jesus is not giving laws here. People so often misunderstand that. He's saying in the kingdom of God, sometimes people do nice things for people who have no way of paying them back at all. And by way of illustrating this, he lists some of those people, poor people, um, challenged people, 
people whose as is tag is just a little more visible than others. Every once in a while, he says, in the kingdom, people don't actually act out of their own self-interest. They actually act generously and lovingly. And one of the best opportunities that you and I have to do this is with difficult people. Jesus says, in actuality, it is really a good thing to have some hard as-is people in your life because they will teach you about the true condition of your heart. Conventional wisdom says judge them, avoid them, hurt them back. Jesus says in the kingdom there is another way because he is building a community of changed lives. So in the time remaining, I want to think with you about the best summary I know of Jesus' teachings about how to deal with as-is people in your life. It comes from a Christian counselor. His name is Henry Cloud. And Henry says um, that according to Jesus, change requires two things. It requires grace and it requires truth. Grace and truth. Grace, he says, is the gift of radical acceptance. Truth is the gift of naming reality and sometimes difficult reality. And as is people, it turns out, need both of these. So let's start with grace. You remember the Apostle Paul writes, accept one another just as Christ accepted you. How did Christ accept you? No strings attached. Unconditionally. While we were yet sinners, Paul writes, Christ died for us. Okay, now let that be the way we are with each other. That's what Paul says. So here is my favorite uh, story about grace. It actually comes from southern Ohio. Can anything good really come out of Ohio? It comes from a high school football team and a guy by the name of Jake Porter, um, who was on one of the teams down there, and Jake had what was called chromosomal fragile X, which means that he was cognitively challenged. But he loves football, and so every day he is out there practicing with the team, working out with them. He, every Friday night, dresses in full gear, knowing that he will never get into a game. It comes to the last game of the season, of his final season. And his coach, a guy by the name of Dave Franz, wants Jake to get in a real game. And so before the game, he goes to the coach on the other sideline, and he says, I got this guy on my team, Jake. He explains the situation. He says, I want Jake to get in for just one play. He says, we've been practicing this all week. If the score is really lopsided, I could put Jake in the game, hand the ball off to him. He knows to take a knee right away. No risk. No one will get hurt. Is it okay if I put Jake in the game? The coach says, sure. So they play the game. There's five seconds left. The score is 42 nothing. Jake's team is losing. Some of you have played in games like this. It's brutal. The coach calls a timeout. 
He's going to put Jake in the game. He does this, and all of a sudden, the coach from the other sideline comes sprinting across. No one knows why is he doing this. Has he changed his mind? He goes up to Jake's coach, and he says, look, I don't want Jake to just get in the game. I want Jake to score a touchdown. Now, this means, of course, that they're giving up their um, shutout, which is a big deal for some teams. Um, but he insists. Jake's coach says, well, we haven't practiced that. All we practiced was the knee thing. But the other coach says, you just give Jake the ball. We'll all make sure that he scores. So Jake's coach comes back to the sideline. He points to Jake and he says, big boy, you're going to the house. Jake starts jumping up and down. He is so excited. The team goes back on the field. The quarterback in the huddle calls Jake's play, ISO 84. The ball is snapped. He turns and he hands the ball off to Jack. And what happens next goes down in the annals of Ohio football history. Jake has practiced so many times taking a knee that he instantly starts to go down. But the whole team starts yelling at him, don't go down. He takes a couple of steps into the backfield. His teammates are all pointing to the end zone. The coaches, everybody on the other team, the referees are all pointing to the end zone. And so Jake slowly makes his way towards the line of scrimmage. 21 players part like the Red Sea parted from Moses. And he takes off for the promised land, slowly and then faster and faster. And everyone on the sidelines is running along with him. And Jake Porter scores a touchdown. And the bleachers go crazy. People are crying in there. They're all hugging each other. A lot of boys paid, played in that game. And when they grow up and because, become old men, they will forget the details of most of the games they have ever played in. They will not remember the scores. But not one of them will forget the day that Jake Porter scored a touchdown. And that is grace. And that is the power of a community to change lives. Because grace says, you belong here. You don't have to get any smarter or better. There doesn't have to be a bumper sticker with your name on it. Grace is why sinful people flocked to Jesus back then. And they still do. Grace is Jesus going to as is people and saying, big boy, you're going to the big house. Even though you may be spiritually challenged. That's grace. Houses don't become homes. The holidays don't become holy days. And a church doesn't become a place where lives are changed without it. But it can't be just grace. It has to be grace and truth. And where there is the appearance of only grace and the absence of truth, there is also trouble. So another story from the Bible. It's a story from the Hebrew Scriptures. It's, it's about a man by the name of Eli who uh, spent most of his life as a priest. He really loved God. 
Eli had two sons. Their names were Hophni and Phinehas. And they too became priests, but they were corrupt. They went bad. We don't know why. Maybe they just didn't like their names. But anyway, they went in the wrong direction. So they would take the sacrifices that people brought for God and they would use them to enrich themselves. Um, they used their position to exploit women. They were really bad, and Eli knew this. He wasn't corrupt, but he knew the truth. He did one time try to intervene, but when that didn't go anywhere, he just stood on the sidelines and pretty much washed his hands of the whole thing. You wonder, what was he thinking? Maybe he's thinking, well, I hope this is just a phase that they grow out of. Maybe he just has a distorted idea of what grace actually looks like. He thinks that it's all about being nice. Maybe he has some avoidance conflict thing, conflict avoidance thing. But he stands on the sidelines and he does nothing as his sons tear down everything that he has given his life for. He says nothing. Sometimes people in churches have a problem with truth. Sometimes people in churches suffer from what you might call terminal niceness. That is, we see somebody going down the wrong path. We know they're making a mistake, but we don't really want to say anything. We tell ourselves, well, I just want to be a loving person. I don't want to inflict pain. When the truth is, what's really going on is I don't want to get too close to that pain. There is a classic scene in the movie, A Few Good Men. You will remember this. Towards the end, Tom Cruise plays the part of a lawyer. He's interrogating Jack Nicholson on the stand. And it's a pretty hostile interrogation. And towards the end, Nick Nicholson says, um, what is it that you want? And the lawyer says, I just want the truth. And you remember the response, you can't handle the truth. You can't quote the Bible, but man, you can quote. <laughs> Don't tell anybody that we just did that. <laughs> Jesus said, you will know the truth. The truth will set you free. And there is actually a decision there as to whether you believe Jesus or whether you believe Jack. Is there somebody in your house? Is there somebody in your extended family? Is there somebody on your little corner of God's world who needs some truth? The same apostle who said, accept each other as Christ accepted you, also said, let the words of Christ dwell in you richly as you admonish each other. That's the truth word again. But here's the other side of that truth thing. It cannot be truth without grace. Because truth in the Gospels, whether it is for your spouse or your kid or your friend, truth is always truth for the other. It is always spoken in love. And sometimes people, even in churches, do truth-telling recreationally. That is, they are a little grace-impaired. Maybe you know somebody like that. 
So they came to Jesus one day, these religious leaders, and they, there was this woman who was caught in adultery. And they said, you know, the law tells us that we ought to stone her. What do you say? And they stood there with their stones in hand. They know the truth. They know what the law says. They could actually care less about this woman. She is just a pawn in their scheme. Have you ever had a stone in your hand? Just a little judgmental thought. Just a little self-righteous attitude going on. I wonder this because I've been involved with the church my whole life. I think there's nothing like the church. But I think about some of the churches that I have come to know over the years where people were just cold. <laughs> it wasn't just that they didn't dance or drink or play cards. They just didn't reflect any real joy. You know, um, there was one thing that seemed to bring them joy, and that was judging somebody else. Somebody's kid got a little wild, got a stone right there. Somebody's marriage falling apart, got it. Somebody didn't follow through on something that they were supposed to do, ready at hand. And the truth, though they would never admit this, the truth is that it sort of energized them, picking up those stones. I don't know what it is about churches and religious people that just seems to produce so many stone throwers. So Jesus looks at these guys and he says, well, let, the, let the one of you who is without sin cast the first stone. And they all slithered away. <laughs> so Jesus says to the woman, nobody here condemns you? Neither do I. That's grace. And then he says to her, now, go and sin no more. That's grace and truth. Not picking up a stone. And by the way, Jesus, if you want to help her through me, I will have the courage to speak the truth in love. I will not stand by with that nice looking lovelessness that stands aside and lets somebody just mess up and think to myself, boy, I wouldn't do that. What's the matter with them? And then go and talk about them behind their back to a third party. Here is the secret. Every one of us carries an as-is tag. Some are just a little more visible than others. And God knew that and knew exactly what we needed. And that's why the word became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. Because the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. But now we're a little bit ahead of ourselves because that's the Christmas story. This is how it works. Houses don't become homes. The holidays are never holy. And churches don't become places that change lives without grace and truth. Amen.